Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is an organization working to engage people across community and societal differences, often involving power structures that can leave one group feeling left out or marginalized. Civity is also a concept, a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with those who are different. In this episode, we explore the role of the public health department and how Civity practices can help local public health officials navigate differences and help residents feel heard and seen. From obvious activities such as educating the public about COVID-19 to activities that may not be immediately clear to the public, such as being involved in transit planning or declaring racism a public health crisis. My guest is Andy Wessel, community health planner with the Douglas County Health Department in Omaha, Nebraska. Talk to me a little bit about the work you do. There's sort of like pre-COVID work and then like during COVID work. Um, So pre-COVID, I worked on basically like built environment issues. We talked about it as like health policy and concrete, where if you make decisions around like your transportation system or housing decisions, all of these things are going to last for decades. So how do you make sure that you're really doing a good job involving the public in those sort of decisions? And that often wasn't happening. And so was involved with all those areas and also involved with helping create a Citizens Academy uh, here in Omaha, Nebraska, to help people sort of better understand, like, here's the process that works, here's how you stay involved, here's the things you should sort of know about, because it was this whole black box of like, how how did these things actually occur? Um, so just help people understand that. I'm also one of our co-facilitators for our health equity team here at the health department. And so I've done a lot of work on health equity issues, racial justice issues. And then for during COVID, I've been overseeing our information line that we've taken over 55,000 calls since COVID started. And we had long stretch where we were taking 300 to 500 calls per day. What kind of calls were you getting? Like what was the tenor of them? We got to see the full spectrum of humanity on the information line because, you know, it's people under stress with a lot of anxiety. And so there were plenty of people who called and were just wanting help with either figuring out how to navigate an exposure that they've had um, and knowing what to do and how at risk they were and things like that. And we're so grateful all the way to the people who just hated our guts, hated everything the health department was doing in response to COVID and had no qualms about telling us how much they hated all of that and how, you know, stupid and evil they thought we were. That's got to be, I mean, uh, I mean, I'm so interested in that piece, but maybe we can save that because uh, I'd love to talk about each piece of the work you described has a relational component. Sure. And so I'm curious, how did you approach, let's take the pre-COVID work. So to, to do a good job with public health, a lot of times you really need to learn some facilitation skills because we have to work well with other people and, and yet like figure out like, how are we going to, to move together? How do you have people together in a room and have them actually like listen to each other well enough that then there starts to be some sort of consensus or at least shared understanding get created. So then you can figure out, okay, this is where it seems like, you know, where we need to, to head and what we need to do to move forward. It's been a necessary piece of my job uh, to be able to do that. And then that's then the connection where, 
working across differences, finding a way that we see, you know, that component of we are in us, whether we recognize it or not. Yeah, we are in us, whether we recognize it or not. That was, I love the way you just said that. And, you know, and it sounds as if you've got, well, as many communities do, some pretty significant and socially salient polarization going on. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) So um, I'm curious, you know, you bring people together, but whether or not you found that civity practices came into play for some of those calls where people were calling and saying that they were angry. I learned how to like do a good job listening, let people sort of burn out in terms of what they need to say. And facilitation, there's something magical when you just take what somebody said and write it down on a board because then they know they were heard. And then they don't have to keep repeating it. Or if they do repeat it, you can say, yep, we've got that here. It's here on the board. Z. we haven't forgotten that. Because so much of what people are pushing for is I just want what is important to me to matter to other people. I want it to be heard because it's ultimately a reflection of like, do I matter? And that's, I think, so much the struggle of when we disagree about the content of our discussion can we still acknowledge that you matter to me as my fellow human being, you know, what you're feeling matters. And so that's part of the struggle with, you know, many times we had conversations where somebody would come in and they would be upset and we would be able to just listen to them, navigate the issue going on with them. And by the time we got off the call, they were like, well, you know, I wasn't sure about calling here, but I'm glad I did. You know, I'm really thankful that happened plenty of times. And then there were other times where it just was like, I'm sorry, you know, you're not going to be able to keep verbally abusing me. I'm going to go ahead and end this call now, (laughs) you know, and you try to do it as polite as possible, but still it's like, no, this this is time for us to be done now. Well, I think that's an important distinction because for many of us, we disagree, but if we can just feel like we're heard, then we're willing to listen to someone else. Or if we can just start from a different point. And that's where I think civity comes in is is starting from a different point. Then we can trust each other enough to listen. But there are also those of us out there who are not in the space where that is something they want to engage with. And I think it's really important to to understand that distinction and know where to put your energies, but also know how to manage that piece. There's part of this distinction that a lot of times people are bringing sort of a consumer mindset to government work. and it's not Burger King. It's not how you order your steak. Like you can't get everything tailored when you're talking about a road project that's going to be serving, you know, tens of thousands of people like you can't tailor it. So it's going to be perfect for you and hoses everybody else. Like it's that challenge of like, there's got to be the give and take in the figuring that out and, and trying to work through all the struggles and ultimately like get to a place where people feel like, okay, I can, I can live with this decision. I don't need to fight this tooth and nail. This is okay. And a lot of that does boil down to do people feel like they were heard? And yes, there are some people that at the end of the day, it's, you're not going to make them happy. They're not going to agree. But again, collectively, we have to move forward. Yeah. Well, and that gets at that idea of people's perception of what is versus what actually is. And you bring this up about how we might misperceive the public sector. And there's been this, I don't think it's accidental. I think there has definitely been some PR that's trying to equate government with business or or something like that. But people still, you know, have seen politics is bad, bureaucracy is bad, and then it feels monolithic like a black box, as you said earlier. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, in addition to to the role you play in informing and getting people resources and things like that. How do you help reorient us 
to help people understand government and the public sector yeah. uh, in a more holistic way. A group uh, that we've worked with in the past, Frameworks Institute, did some research on how do people understand government. And one of the things that they found is just the word government is problematic. People basically go to like, government is this awful thing that interferes with their lives. And, and what they found is it mainly fell into those two categories of like, what we associate government with is politics and people running for election and like making all sorts of promises that they may or may not keep and trying to, you know, get all this money. And, and it's basically a lack of integrity and power plays and things like that. And the other way that people tend to see government is as bureaucracy. So this like wasteful, inefficient block, <laughs> in essence, uh, that doesn't really accomplish much other than than being a pain. Having worked now within the public sector for, you know, about 12 years, there's plenty of times where interacting with government agencies is a pain and it absolutely can be. But the challenge is that at the end of the day, like this is our mechanism for collective problem solving. Like this is how we as community come together and try to figure out, okay, how are we going to plan out a better future for ourselves, for our kids, for our grandkids, all of that. And then when we have challenges like COVID, how do we figure out how we're going to get through this? And the public sector is not the only means for that, obviously, but its function is like when we have a challenge that's beyond sort of individual control, when it really is like at a macro societal level, community level, like this is the entity that's supposed to help step in and do something about that. And part of what I think we don't recognize is all the times that it does that well. I make a, you know, joke when I'm giving a presentation, you know, how many of you have had cholera before, you know, and people will be like, no, I've never had cholera. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's because your sewer system is working, you know, waste disposal system is working. That was the battle a hundred years ago, you know, was getting those things all fixed. And we did. That is rarely an issue. Like something like Flint happening ends up being such a huge issue because we expect now everything to work right. And you turn on that faucet and you've got clean water coming out. Same sort of thing with our, our road system. I mean, yes, everybody hates commuting and yes, it can be a pain, but like traffic signals like 90 five, 99% of the time are working, you know, yes, the road conditions are not what they should, but like, again, in comparison to what things would have been like 100 years ago, it's phenomenal what we have in place. And so we miss sight of the fact that like, you know, what we notice is what's broken and we overlook what's just sort of we're taking for granted because it just, we get up in the morning, we turn on the lights, it works. You know, we go to flush the toilet, it works, all those things. Yeah. Like it's the air we breathe. So we don't realize that that actually was constructed. Well, we don't realize that, you know, there were whole fights on making sure that the air that we breathe is clean, as clean as possible. You know, I mean, we're still having fights over like what level is safe for us to tolerate in terms of how, how much we're willing to pollute our air. I think that's a great point. And when you and I were going back and forth via email, you talked about the public sector as a space where there's a shared fate. Mm -hmm. Those really resonated with me. And this idea of othering the government as a them or an it, yep. rather than thinking about it as, oh, these are people, these are our neighbors, these are fellow human beings. Because if you think about the government is made up of our neighbors, uh, you know, they work in government. Whenever we gave people evaluation forms with the like Citizens Academy, that was one of the like very consistent comments was that these people are just like me. They're just fellow human beings trying to do their job right. They're not like mindless bureaucrats. And that was part of the, 
just again, having people in relationship, having ordinary citizens who are passionate about an issue, but don't necessarily know that much of the ins and outs of it, sit down and have the opportunity to talk with, you know, the park planner, the transportation planner, you know, give them that opportunity to actually be in dialogue with each other. I think that's one of the big challenges is once we get to the scale where we're sort of beyond the village mode, where we just know everybody, then we've got to navigate all sorts of issues of so I don't know you, so I don't know whether I can trust you or not. And so then we sort of start off the relationship often in a place where I don't know that I can trust you. And now you're trying to sell me on this particular like change in my life. And so for us in the public sector, we either need to be both of these things. We need to be building relationships where people do know us and feel like they can trust us. But then there are just the times where we may not have those relationships established, but how do we then correct that, build those relationships, communicate in ways where it, it does make it possible for people to at least understand what's going on and make a clear decision of, do I support this or not? You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with public health official Andy Wessel about navigating difference in public health. I think one of the challenges is that a large public meeting is not necessarily the best opportunity for people to truly dialogue with each other. If we're just needing to inform people, hey, this is going on, here's a little bit of information about it, that can work great. But the challenge is when we really need to talk something through and go deep with each other, there's a different sort of time and space that needs to be given to that. And often it needs to be sort of built on some one-on-one -on -one relationships that have been established beforehand. And you just have to be more intentional about them, go invest in them. We don't think to do this often as, as public sector people, but to go to people's homes, you know, sit at their dining room table and have a conversation is often what's necessary before you then have the, you know, the government sort of <laughs> public hearing or public meeting or something like that. That again, we're often pressed for time and, you know, challenged with juggling everything. And so we don't lay those necessary foundations for then having the payoff later of things actually work, you know, the way that you would want them to work. I think that leads a little bit into my next question is the how do you think we got here question. And you've described it a little bit. There's a lack of time amongst all of us to really do that foundational work before jumping into the issue at hand. But I'm wondering if you want to expand on that. How else do you think we got to this point in our communities and in our society? Well, it goes back to like, how far do you want to take that? Because, yeah, you know, true. at least for us of like European ancestry, like we were the people who like, fled the country because we didn't want to put up with government regulations or we're seeking freedom, you know, whatever. And then we're so ticked off by all of that, that we were willing to have a revolution. In that sense, there's something woven into our DNA as a nation that is we're not going to tolerate, you know, government interference in ways that we don't like. So there's, there's that component. Um, but I think we're also just sort of still dealing with some of the repercussions of the civil rights era and then Vietnam and Watergate that really was this sort of turning point in terms of like, wait, is government mostly trustworthy or not? And that's part of why you see the ramifications of all of that. And then what's happened in terms of the, the political polarization, particularly at the federal level, that in general, the like level of trust that people have in government has gone downhill and it's sequential. I mean, you know, the federal level is usually where there's the least amount of trust, a little bit more for state. And then usually people have the most faith in their local government. And that's partly because there is just that opportunity to actually know some of the people doing the work. Um, and again, if you have those relationships where people know me and can call me and talk about something, 
then that makes a big difference. Or if they know, hey, here's the information line for the local health department and they call and they talk to people who, you know, aren't just robots, but are like genuine human beings. Those are some of the things that, again, when people are interacting at that human level, makes that trust possible that then is, is foundational for us being able to, to hold together as a community, make progress, figure out how, how do we do the work of working on behalf of the common good, protecting both public health and public safety, figuring out what our shared future, that shared fate, what we want it to be. But again, so much of it starts with, do we trust each other? Are we willing to work together? Do we recognize that the public sector along with all of these other sectors and, and stakeholders, you know, ultimately have to find a way to, to work on behalf of our community. You mentioned some examples there, and I don't know if those were real or just generalities, but do you have a couple of anecdotes that you can share about how you used your facilitation work to connect? It was a systems mapping project around housing affordability um, here in Omaha, because like the rest of the nation, we were challenged around how do we make sure we have enough affordable housing to go around. And in particular, like costs are going up so much. How do we make sure that future generations and even people currently like that you don't have to be like middle class plus to be able to afford a home? The metaphor we use for that is like the one of the blind men and the elephant where everybody goes and feels different parts of the elephant. Well, that was what we were in essence doing. We were bringing together the city planner who works on this piece of housing affordability with the you know homeless advocate who works on this other separate piece with the public health people with then the like real estate developers um, with the like neighborhood advocates all of these people and again the sense is everybody has a piece of you know what the shape of this whole issue is but how do we make sense of how to bring it all together and I remember <laughs> very specifically like we built this out of like here when you combine all these pieces together here's what it looks like and then we were. Um, sharing it with a, a rural community in Nebraska with a board that specifically works on like how to increase housing affordability in rural communities. And he said, I really need a copy of this because I can take this to my board and this will explain to them why this issue is so complicated and why it's so hard. That's so cool. That's so neat that you were able to sort of visually map it out using all those pieces. Part of the point is shifting from our perspectives are different. Therefore, my perspective, because of course, my perspective is right. right and if, if yours is different, then your perspective must be wrong to realizing we're just coming at this at different places and that there's actually a way that if we look at them together, we can see that they actually do line up and they don't have to be dismissive of each other or it doesn't have to be, again, the sort of zero something where for, for me to be right, you have to be wrong. Right. I like the example of um, the six and the nine, you know, like the, there's a number written on the ground. If I'm on one side, I see a six, but you see a nine uh -huh. and if I must be right. Right. But if I actually just walk around and look at it from your perspective, I'm like, oh, OK. Part of that is just are we listening to each other well enough to understand, to get to that plane of shared understanding? Like, I may not agree with you, but I understand where you're coming from. And therefore, like, I realize why you were, from your perspective, it makes sense to push the way that you're pushing. Yeah. And I think that we as a society have been having a hard time doing that lately. And part of that goes back to, like, what are the mechanisms that we have in place to actually enable, facilitate real listening with each other? One of the points that was made in the book, Culture Wars, that my understanding is gave that term to us as a culture to understand what the heck was going on was the idea that many of our formats, and this was like pre-social media, but that even within traditional media, you know, it's a kind of discourse that is more likely to polarize us 
rather than to help us sort of generate real understanding about across differences. Social media just sort of heightens that as well. And when we sort of expect that we're going to come together and we're going to disagree, and then the way through that is I'm going to verbally beat you into the ground, we don't get to the point of, wait a second, you have a valuable perspective and maybe only 10% of what you're saying is right. And, and it's so much easier for me to see the 90% that's wrong. But if your 10% may actually be essential for getting a workable solution. You brought up earlier the, the white European perspective of, and yes, that is totally baked into. But we also have, again, the culture wars idea of we have an indigenous population that basically went through an apocalypse, you know, when, when the settlers or colonizers showed up. And we have, uh, you know, an African-American population that was enslaved. So there's all these, not just different perspectives, but deeply rooted emotional trauma trauma and there's trauma there yeah there's historical trauma yes yes and that makes listening that much harder in summer of 2020 we were one of the communities that our board of health you know declared racism a public health crisis and part of that was we've been looking at the data for years decades that says we have these you know disparities that are along racial lines and to some degree, it was just finally getting to the point of saying the honest thing that is racism, both historical and contemporary, is a culprit behind these health disparities that we're seeing. So let's let's just name that and say that that's a part of what's going on. And, and to some degree, that's supposed to be our role, like at, as a public health department, looking at like the macro level issues that is this helping our community be healthy or is this is undermining the health of our community? Like that's just our job to say those things, even though they may not be comfortable. But then it becomes, okay. we've said that. Now, what do we do about that? We've got to figure out a way that we can all live together and we all have to be treated as human beings that matter. And frankly, government's been a problem in terms of playing favorites between different groups of people. And so we are responsible to a significant degree in in creating this mess. How do we, to a significant degree, be part of the solution now? And frankly, like having more people be successful in our community is a good thing. So many more people understand public health and they also understand those issues of health disparities now with the spotlight that COVID has shown on them. But again, are people willing to do what it takes to fix those things? And, you know, from a public health perspective, you know, the historical view I talked about, you know, 100 years ago, the challenge was getting sewers in place. And like for us right now, like, of course, that would be something, you know, that everybody would want. But those sort of challenges cost money. Doing inspections of like meat processing, meat packing plants. That was controversial. That is something that like, of course we expect that now. The same sort of thing with lead in our paint. Of course we expect that we're not gonna have lead in our paint, but that was a fight. Smoking was a huge fight in terms of like, we would not go back now to having restaurants allow smoking, having workplaces allow smoking indoors, all of those sort of things. We wouldn't go back. And so, The hope is that we get to the point where enough people have experienced what it's like to really have a culture that's founded in belonging and figuring out the ways to bridge our differences and to treat each other with truly genuine respect and authenticity that they're like, nope, we're not going back anymore. Um, We're not going back to the old way of doing things. It makes sense that public health would be involved in COVID-19 response. It makes sense that public health would be involved in disease involving water. Yeah. But when public health departments say we're declaring racism a public health issue, I think there's a lot of people in the general public 
who are like, why is my health department playing politics is basically the the gist of. Right. So talk to me a little bit about public health's role in declaring something like that and why it's important. There's an aspect of public health that is really about what's the evidence of this? We look at our numbers. We look at the differences that we have. Two of the most prominent examples would be life expectancy and infant mortality. Now, we all want, you know, the members of our community to, to live a long, healthy life. Nobody's arguing for babies not to make it to their first birthday, all of those sort of things. And yet, when we look at our data, we see there are just stark differences and that those things play out on racial lines. It's easier for people to understand health from sort of an individual perspective. They think of going to the gym or they think of like, am I eating fruits and vegetables? So many times our challenge as a health department is when we share that data, and people look at it with that lens, they then think, oh, those people must not be doing those individual behaviors right. But that's just not really what's the issue there. What's really at the issue is we have all of these historical factors. One of the best explanations for this is the idea of weathering. If your house is dealing with severe storms all the time, it is going to weather faster, it is going to wear out faster. That's what we see basically play out. Um, in terms of health outcomes, and that when you are making people have a harder time to be able to succeed in life, to thrive in life, they will end up having more disease and they will die sooner. And we see that play out. And so again, mostly it was for public health. Okay, let's just name this for what it is. We don't have all the answers for what to do about that. Nobody in our society does, but let's figure out how we can be part of the solution. So you don't have all the answers, but are there solutions you want to try or that you are trying? One of the scholars around racism work is a man named Jamar Tisby, and he has a very simple sort of framework of this, and he talks about it as the ARC framework, um, ARC, and first piece being awareness, second piece being relationships, and third, the C is commitment. What are the actions you're taking? All of those sort of things. That's where the health department is right now. Okay, we've done our homework in terms of knowing not only the data, but also the history of our community. So that awareness piece is there. Are we now in strong enough relationships um, with community members where they can hold us accountable and help us understand how we move forward together? And then what are the commitments? Okay, so we made a commitment that we're going to make this declaration. We had 22 action steps that were then built into that, that were here's the things we're going to do about it. But all of that is only going to work well if it is still done in relationship with people. What government often does is called the like decide and defend approach. And that doesn't really work very well. So it's really, are we in relationship with each other so that we're moving forward together instead of, you know, government trying to do for. Great point, because when it's top down, people definitely push back. But if they feel like they're part of it. We have all these experiences in public health of we eventually as a community say this is unacceptable. It is unacceptable to have human waste in our streets. We're going to build a sewer system. It is unacceptable that we're having lead, which is a neurotoxin that is getting into the bloodstreams of our children. It is unacceptable that people who are just making their living working in a restaurant or bar are going to be subjected to secondhand smoke all the time. That's not okay. So I think there are places where we're at right now with where our race relations are, where we're saying this is unacceptable. And then the question becomes, when we say that that's unacceptable and we hold to that and we push for that and fight for that, how are we then doing it? There's a place at the table for everyone. We're going to succeed as a community together. 
how do we stay in relationships so we do that? And I think that's sort of the tough work is both having the courage to stick to what we know is unacceptable, but then the courage to, to sort of have those conversations and to be in relationship with people who are different so that it isn't just the echo chamber of people telling me what I want to hear, but instead you're being real with each other. We're in this very adversarial moment or space and we're not the enemy. Nobody's the enemy. Right. And to some degree, that's easier when you're your job is specifically supposed to be working on behalf of everyone, like very intentionally, like you don't want me playing favorites and picking and choosing who gets to be healthy and who's not. We got to work on behalf of everybody being healthy. That's our role. Right. And if this person over here that you'd like not to put resources into is unhealthy, that's going to affect you. And again, that's what we've seen with COVID. The success of our community depends on our health. Like that is foundational. We've seen when we've had this serious threat to our health how much that has undermined everything else in society. So we really have to get that health piece right as a foundational component, but to get the health piece right, there's also this piece of like, can we work together? Can we really find ways to, to chart a course together instead of you know being at odds with each other? Well, that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you to my guest, Andy Wessel, community health planner with the Douglas County Health Department in Omaha, Nebraska. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.